From Ohio to Colorado, Minnesota to Utah, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, capitalism is under attack as the left spreads misconceptions and disinformation in an effort to promote socialism. Dr. Rainier Zottelman is author of the new book, In Defense of Capitalism. He is here for a discussion. There is another entrant into the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Poverty remains a persistent problem, and the solution is more economic freedom that tears down barriers to prosperity. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine talks with Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation. And prominent black columnist George Schuyler should be remembered and celebrated during Black History Month. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College has an American Radio Journal commentary. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Socialists are gaining power in Congress and dominate the legacy news media by spreading fallacies about the capitalist system upon which our nation is built. Dr. Rainier Zettelman is author of In Defense of Capitalism, and he joins us now. Rainier, welcome to American Radio Journal. Rainier, you have written the book In Defense of Capitalism, what compelled you to write a book on this topic? I see that capitalism today is everywhere under attack, everywhere in the world. This book will be published in 30 languages at the same time. And so you see, it's quite necessary, whether you look in the United States, in Europe, in, in Asia, in Latin America, of course, capitalism is everywhere under attack. And I think it's time to defend the system because all that we have, all that you have in the United States, all the standards of living. It's thanks to capitalism. And uh, I think sometimes people forget the reasons why, for example, America became such a great country. In your book, In Defense of Capitalism, you go through a number of the fallacies, the misperceptions, the lies that are told about capitalism. So let's talk individually about some of those here, beginning with the fact that there's still hunger, there's still poverty in capitalist systems. And of course, those who promote socialism blame capitalism for that. Why is that wrong? Before capitalism, 200 years ago, 90% of the worldwide population lived in extreme poverty. I repeat, 90, 90, 90% lived in extreme poverty. Today, it's less than 10%. I think it's amazing. It's a success story. And more important, half of this reduction happened over the last de- decade. So it's a great time for capitalism. And of course, everyone who is hungry or in starvation is too much. But think about this. If people hear about famines or starvation, mostly they think about Africa. But 80% of people who died, who, who died in famines, died in Soviet Union or in China in the last century. 80%. So socialism killed people. One of the big areas that the left likes to talk about is climate change. Rainer, they like to blame capitalism for environmental destruction and causing climate change. That, of course, is not true, is it? No, it's not true. And you can see it, uh, for example, I give a lot of facts in my book comparing East and West Germany. 
because this is easy to compare Germany, the same culture, the same language, the same people, the same country, same history, but different economic and political uh, economical system. And if you compare it, the CO2 emissions were three times higher, three times higher in East Germany than in West Germany. You can Google it on for free on the internet, the Index of Economic Freedom from Heritage Foundation. This is ranking how economically free are countries in the world, or I call it the capitalism scale. And then there's another index. This is the Environmental Performance Index from Yale University, EPI. You can get all this free on the internet. And if you compare both of this, you see the best environmental standards are in countries that are most economically free, and the worst environmental standards are in countries that are unfree. So I think for a lot of uh, so-called climate activists, or uh, they don't really care about to find solutions. This is the reason, for example, why they are against nuclear power plants. What would be a good solution for this problems of climate change? No, there are not interests in solutions. For them, it's only a pretext in their fight against capitalism. Class warfare is a hallmark of socialism and the left, yet they claim that it's capitalism that leads to having society dominated by the rich. Is that true? And is capitalism really dominated and the political agenda really dominated by the wealthy class? For a lot of countries, it's absolutely ridiculous. I come from Germany, as you hear with my accent, and it's a crazy idea. Everyone would laugh at the idea that super rich people rule in Germany. But what is about the United States? Of course, often people say in the United States, and it's true, you need a lot of money to run for president. But if it would be so easy that, that uh, money turns automatically into political power, then Donald Trump would have never become president of the United States because Yes, he raised $600 million, but Hillary raised two times more, $1.2 billion. So she got twice as much as he, but he became president. The president wouldn't be Joe Biden today, but Michael Bloomberg, because Michael Bloomberg, who wanted to run for president, he was the eighth richest man in the world at this time with a net worth of $62 billion. And he spent $1 billion, I think, in three months. So it's not so easy. And I have a lot of facts like this in my book. Even I, I quote very often people who are not on my page who have different opinion. For example, political scientists, and they made research in how many elections in the United States in the last 64 years, the difference, how much money the, the candidates get. It was only in two out of, in, in two of these elections. So, so you have in this book a lot of facts, and maybe let me add something. I didn't write the book because I think I can convince anti-capitalists, because they will not read the book. They will not buy the book. They prefer maybe to, to buy the next book from Bernie Sanders. I think it's published at the same time as my book. It's a book about against capitalism. They prefer to read book number 35, Why Capitalism is Evil. No, I wrote this book for people who are maybe emotional, pro-free market economy, anti-socialist, pro-capitalist, but they don't have all the facts, all the arguments. And I used for this book more than 350 books and scientific papers. You see it in the bibliography, 900 footnotes, but in the same time, it's written in the easy way. Everyone who's able to, to read, for example, New York Times or Wall Street Journal can read this book. And this was the reason why I read it, to provide people with facts and arguments so that you can win 
every discussion if you have a discussion with uh, anti-capitalists. In your book, you have uh, an entire section, and you talk about the fact that socialism can look good on paper, except when, as you put it, the paper is a history book. Yes. I see it. You know, I have lectures all over the world about this topic. And I always ask people, whether I speak to 30 people, to 300 or to 3,000, I ask the people, who, have, as, who has ever heard at school about the biggest socialist experiment in history? This is Mao's so-called Great Leap Forward. It happened from 1958 to 1962. Forty-five million people died in China as a result of this biggest socialist experiment in history. And now what's frustrating Wherever I ask these questions, whether I have my lectures in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, or in the United States, only a few people raise their hands. They haven't heard about it at school. And this is the reason why I have added a chapter about real socialists, not about theory. Because what socialists like, they like to discuss about theory. They compare the reality of capitalism with their utopia, with a book. But I think this is not fair. You should compare capitalism with real existing alternatives in history. We have been talking with Rainier Zeidelman, who is author of the book In Defense of Capitalism. And Rainier, where can folks go if they would like to get a copy of your book to learn more about this topic? You can get it on Amazon or you can get it on Barnes & Noble. It will be published on 7th of March, but you can get it right now. Rainer Zeidelman, in defense of capitalism author. Rainer, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth joins us every week here on American Radio Journal. Sometimes we talk about what's going on in Congress. Other times we take a look at the political landscape, which is what we're going to do today. Scott, welcome back. It's great to be back, Loman. Thanks for having me. The 2024 presidential race really off and running. Of course, it may have, Scott, been off and running since November of 2020. But we have yet another entrant into the Republican race. What occurred there this past week? Well, this week, Vivek Ramaswamy announced that he would be seeking the Republican nomination. Here's a young American entrepreneur and author and political activist from the Cincinnati area of Ohio. And he's been dubbed the, quote, CEO of Anti-Woke Inc. by a New Yorker profile. This is a guy that has made a lot of money quickly. He, he's Harvard and Yale educated and is the co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management, which is a hedge fund. And ultimately, with his investment experience, taking on the ESG issues and being an Indian American, I think, gives him some standing with the Republican primary voters, to talk about those issues. Obviously, a, a very, very smart and charismatic young guy. Some folks wonder, is, is he entering the presidential to raise his profile and potentially get in the Ohio Senate race? You know, right now, what I would say is the guy declared for the presidency, and we need to watch his candidacy and, and see if it can get any momentum, just like we would with anybody else, from Nikki Haley announcing earlier this month and obviously President Trump announcing late last year, we know more people are traveling the country and, and starting to meet with voters, even if they haven't made an official announcement. 
Speaking of that, this past week, the candidates or potential candidates have been very busy. Donald Trump, of course, went to East Palestine, Ohio, and you had Ron DeSantis in New York, Philadelphia, and Chicago. Is this a little bit early for all of this, or has this sort of become the norm in presidential politics? I don't think it's early at all. I think that this is pretty pretty standard at this point in, in American politics for folks to be rubbing elbows in, in key communities. We also had South Carolina Senator Tim Scott visiting Drake University in Iowa this week, talking to folks about his positive message and wanting to lift up a new generation of conservatism. And so as, as you've got Governor DeSantis, as you've got Tim Scott, as you've got Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and President Trump and all these folks that are traveling around the country, we know there's even more that are, are eyeing the presidency at some point in their careers. And basically, at the point of February 2023, a lot of folks need to discern, is there an, a window of opportunity for me to come through and, and be a part of this discussion? Will I get on the debate stage? Can I raise money? What's my media strategy? How am I going to engage the grassroots? How am I going to engage the establishment? And different candidates have different approaches and strategies in order to become a competitive candidate. Now, we all see the polling that comes out there, right? There's early polling that obviously shows President Trump with a large advantage at this point. But I do think that there are a lot of voters out there that want to see what his campaign is going to be like and how it's going to be different. And then they want to see what these other candidates look like. There's a lot of interest, and I think that it's a posture that the American voter takes seriously when they consider the highest office in our land. On the Democrat side, Joe Biden, President Biden, obviously eligible to run for re-election. He hasn't announced yet. Do you expect that's going to be coming very soon? I think that President Biden is in the position right now that he is going to block out darn near any serious and credible challenger for the Democrat nomination. This week, he was in Ukraine marking the one-year anniversary of uh, that conflict with Russia. And he's doing things that are very much a presidential moment and, a, and spoke to a pretty considerable crowd over there in Europe when he was in Ukraine and Poland. And if Biden announces, whether that's in March 2023 or August, I think he's going to be well positioned to be the Democrat nominee. I don't expect somebody very serious to mount a credible challenge to him. But the real issue for the American voter is going to be in the general election when you look at what the Biden record entails. And I think that it's uh, just a complete disaster in terms of an economic record and a leadership record that shows us leading from behind. America has always been about exceptionalism and strength, but Biden has been candidly a, a very, very weak president. And that starts with the state of our economy, high inflation, and really a lost generation of wealth for the middle class. So we have the Biden record, which, of course, is going to be difficult for the president and his campaign to defend. But you can't run against somebody with nobody, and you can't run against something without something else. So where do Republicans go, Scott, in terms of messaging? I think that we need to be messaging about restoring and strengthening the American economy, that we need to be defending American culture, and we cannot bow down to those that want to destroy us, whether that is politically, culturally, or through military strength. 
There's a lot of questions about Russia and China that I think are going to be at the forefront of the Republican nomination and the, and obviously the general election in 2024. But the bottom line is what happened over the last three years since the coronavirus pandemic began can never, ever happen again. And I think that we need leaders that are willing to stand up and say, slow down when they try to do that and they try to take away our rights. We have been talking with Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. And Scott, tell us a little bit about the club. Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. You can check us out at clubforgrowth.org. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, again, thank you for being here. Thank you. Economic freedom is the most effective way to fight poverty and to tear down barriers to prosperity. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine discusses a new report with Elizabeth Stell of the Commonwealth Foundation. Governments spend lots of money on anti-poverty programs, but what if that spending is counterproductive because it's targeted at the wrong people? That's what we're going to take a look at here today. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Elizabeth Stell. She is the Director of Policy Analysis for the Commonwealth Foundation and the co-author of uh, two new reports coming out next week, looking at poverty in Pennsylvania, looking at anti-poverty programs and how economic freedom can do a better job of lifting people out of poverty. Elizabeth, you're a longtime friend of mine, and I think this is actually the first time you've been on the program, so thanks for taking some time with us today. Really glad to have you here. Yeah, my pleasure. One of the things that you guys say in this report is that governments focus on the alleviation of poverty and not the promotion of prosperity is backwards, that it actually requires uh, both of these things. Unpack that a little bit for us. What does that mean? Most of our government assistance programs are focused on getting people money or getting people resources trying to address the symptoms of poverty or or their low incomes or their experiences, instead of asking why are they stuck in low-paying jobs, why are they not working, why are they living paycheck to paycheck. And when we went out and actually surveyed low-income Pennsylvanians and asked them, well, what are your barriers to financial security? What keeps you from working or working more? They said two things. Number one, debt and taxes which really tells you that it's oftentimes the government itself that is creating a barrier to prosperity. So before we start talking about more um, ways to alleviate the symptoms of poverty, we need to take a step back and think about what obstacles does the government have in place right now that are holding back people, that are limiting prosperity, and that's where we should start first. I think this is uh, this is a report, obviously, that is focused on on Pennsylvania. I'm somewhat biased here because I'm a, a native Pennsylvanian myself. But I, one of the things that I think is really cool about Pennsylvania is that it is kind of a microcosm of the country. You've got a couple big urban centers. You have some uh, some pretty large and growing and sprawling suburbs. You also have a lot of very rural areas. And uh, I think a, a lot of times, especially on on the right, conservatives, libertarians, we think about poverty as being a an urban sort of issue. And and certainly Philadelphia has the highest poverty rate in. Pennsylvania. But one of the things that you guys found is that the next four counties with the highest poverty rates are not urban places. They're actually some of like the most rural parts of the state. What does that tell us about the way we should think about poverty and then and then think about the policy solutions to it? Yeah, that's one of the, the myths we tried to bust in this research. When we started this project, we said, okay, we know we often have good solutions to promoting prosperity and helping all Pennsylvanians prosper. But we get hung up on these myths 
what poverty looks like in our mind's eye is not actually how it's being experienced. And so we wanted to shed a light on that. And one of those is that we think of poverty as an urban problem, mostly. And that's just not true. Um, in Pennsylvania, you know, we sometimes say we have, you know, Pennsylvania kind of in the middle. It's, it's very rural. There's more deer than people. And unsurprisingly, those counties, Forest County, Columbia, Potter, Fayette, those counties have a lot of poverty. And the problem there is there's just not a lot of opportunity. And there are lots of barriers for for those people finding those higher paying jobs. And so we talk about what types of things could we do to bring prosperity to those areas? What types of government barriers can we tear down? So it doesn't matter as much where you live, that you can prosper whether you're in Philadelphia County or if you're in Columbia County. Is there a political divide that matters there too, that, that Democrats obviously have a constituency primarily in cities and uh, and also are the the political faction that tends to advocate for for poverty reduction programs i think more successfully at least than conservatives do and like how does that break down on those on those same sorts of or uh, of of urban rural divides yeah that's a good question you know i think because a lot of the advocacy around growing government assistance problems happens in urban areas or happens um, by the the organizations that are are based in these urban areas there's a sense that it's a bigger problem in these urban areas, which isn't necessarily true. And so I think there's just kind of a different mindset of, of what the underlying causes are for poverty in these areas. And that changes how people think about the solutions. So if you're in Forest County and you're you know making less than poverty in your income, it might be because you refuse to move someplace where there are good jobs or because you're a retiree and you don't, you know, you're living paycheck to paycheck with Social Security. That's very different from someone who's in Philadelphia and their barrier is, you know, transportation. They can't get to a job or they have a young child and they can't afford childcare. They don't have a way to care for that child while they're working, both low income, but for very different reasons. We're talking with Elizabeth Stell. She's the director of policy analysis for the Commonwealth Foundation, talking about these uh, new reports on poverty in Pennsylvania that will be available. You can check them out at commonwealth.org next week. Elizabeth, I think one thing just to hit on what you were just saying there is that like, and this is one of the things that this report does, I think, really interestingly, is that you've got sort of personal accounts. You surveyed real people who are experiencing poverty about what the obstacles to success are for them. And it and it is different for everyone. Like this is not, it is a widespread phenomenon in some regards, but really this is ultimately an individual issue. Absolutely. And that's why it's so hard for the government to fix because governments are really good at instituting, you know, one size fits all solutions. They're not so good about customized programming and figuring out what's going to help you in your individual situation. And so when we looked at the relationship between poverty and economic freedom, we said, hey, if you want to help everybody, just give them more economic freedom. You know, you can never go wrong there. In fact, our research found that if you were to improve economic freedom in Pennsylvania, that alone could raise incomes by $2,338 per capita. So we know that when in doubt, economic freedom is always the way to go. Yeah, and these targeted programs, if you target uh, poverty in Philadelphia or poverty in Forest County, those are going to look very different, and they're going to fail in the places that they're not designed to uh, to work for. Obviously, give people more freedom, more choices. That's going to help people find whatever prosperity means to them. We are unfortunately out of time for today. Elizabeth, thanks for taking some time with us. Absolutely. And again, that's Elizabeth Stell, Director of Policy Analysis at the Commonwealth Foundation. Check out their work online, commonwealthfoundation.org. They do really fantastic stuff about uh, Pennsylvania primarily, but I think a lot of the lessons there, as we were saying, can be applied to the rest of the country as well. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Bame. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. 
George Schuyler was an influential black columnist. He was a conservative, so you likely won't be hearing much about him, except on this American Radio Journal commentary from Dr. Paul Kengor at the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College. A column by historian Mary Graybar in The American Spectator asks an excellent question, namely, quote, why does Black History Month ignore the author of the most talked-about column in Negro America, unquote? Graybar is certainly qualified to ask. For years, she has worked on a major biography of George Schuyler, who in his day, he wrote from the 1930s through the 1970s, was dubbed the author of the most talked-about column in, in the parlance of the day, Negro America. Who was Schuyler, and why has he been forgotten? States Graybar, quote, this once famous trailblazing writer has been memory hold, unquote. Sadly, Schuyler has been memory hold for political ideological reasons, because Schuyler was a prominent black conservative. He was also a stalwart anti-communist who spent much time calling out black and white leftists alike who were sympathetic to Marxism-Leninism, an ideology that once nearly enticed George Schuyler himself but that he thoroughly repudiated and brilliantly dissected. Graybar writes of Schuyler, quote, He sounded the alarm about communists from the time he first began working for a publication, the Black Socialist Monthly, The Messenger, in 1923, unquote. Once he landed at the great Pittsburgh Courier, which was arguably America's leading black newspaper, George Schuyler was more outspoken, so much so that even the Courier got nervous. By the 1960s, notes Mary Graybar, Schuyler became persona non grata in black publications, including the Pittsburgh Courier. He began writing more for such conservative publications as the Manchester Union Leader, American Opinion, Human Events. In 1966, the Pittsburgh Courier was sold and Schuyler's 42-year association was ended. Personally, I appreciate Mary Graybar's interest in George Schuyler. In fact, in September 2017, I wrote a long tribute piece on Schuyler for the 40th anniversary of his death. I did a commentary on it for American Radio Journal back then. My recollection and Graybar's are especially apt this time of year, i.e. Black History Month. In fact, it greatly troubles us that always on short lists of prominent black Americans hailed this month, are Marxists like W.E.B. Du Bois, Langston Hughes, and Paul Robeson, who was a literal Stalinist. No exaggeration. Langston Hughes declared, quote, put one more S in the USA to make it Soviet. The USA, when we take control, will be the U.S.S.A. In one poem, Langston Hughes put it this way, goodbye, Christ, Lord Jehovah, beat it on away from here. Make way for a new guy with no religion at all, a real guy named Marx, communism, Lenin, peasant, Stalin, worker, me. That was Langston Hughes, ladies and gentlemen. To George Schuyler, that was outrageous. It was less poetry than sophistry. Worse, it was tragically wrong thinking about a lethal ideology responsible for the deaths of countless tens of millions. And yet, today, it's the writings of Langston Hughes that are required reading in public schools, not George Schuyler's. Stalinist Paul Robeson is celebrated, including with a Paul Robeson Cultural Center at Penn State University, among other things named for him at our universities. They're conveniently disassociated from that odious ideological baggage. When historians like me bring it up, 
we're portrayed as the bad guys, as conservative knuckle-draggers. As for George Schuyler, not only was he never suckered by these deadly ideologies, but he sounded the alarm against them. He took on the likes of Du Bois and Hughes and Robeson. It's a key reason why he was indeed once the most influential black columnist in the country. So why is George Schuyler not remembered during Black History Month? Well, the reason, ladies and gentlemen, is prejudice. That is, political prejudice. He is, in effect, discriminated against by liberal historians and educators because he was a black conservative Republican. And that is a shame. George Schuyler was a great American and a great talent, and he deserves to be remembered. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including KWSHAM in Shawnee, Oklahoma, WYBB-FM in Charleston, South Carolina, and WWFA-FM in Florence, Alabama. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program, please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom.